Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 once again. As we have uh, come to really our final message, the final part of Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 verses 24 through 27. You know, the world has seen a number of infamous engineering and architectural failures through its generations. All the way back to 27 AD in the city of Fidenai, eight miles north of Rome, there was a young entrepreneur named Adelius who decided he wanted to profit from the, from the appetite people had for gladiatorial games. He was going to build himself a stadium and sell tickets and make a fortune. Roman historian Tacitus tells us, Adelius drew up his plans quickly for a wood frame stadium, rushed into construction. However, he had no plans that involved any kind of footings and so built his stadium on an unsound foundation. There had been a temporary ban in gladiatorial fights by the emperor Tiberius. And when he lifted the ban, the crowds were all the eager to make their way wherever they could to these kinds of battles. And so 50,000 people crowded into Adelius' new stadium only to have the stadium collapse underneath them. And 20,000 people died that day. It was a tragedy that caused the Roman Senate to set new requirements that all stadiums, all amphitheaters from that time forth be inspected and certified regarding their foundation before they can be erected. In the year 1284 in Beauvais, France, a cathedral was designed to be the tallest cathedral in the world. However, as it was under construction, it uh, unfortunately collapsed, at least partially, partially collapsed on itself, apparently because the walls were not properly engineered to withstand the wind loads that came against them from the plains. The collapse is actually credited with shaking the confidence of French masons so much that from that point forward, there was a major architectural shift in France, at least, to an age of no longer attempting such massive structures. Everything after that was much smaller in stature. In modern times, some of us may remember the tragic year of 1993, where a six-story Royal Plaza Hotel in Thailand came crashing down, killing 137 people, one of them a U.S. Air Force Sergeant, investigations uncovered that the owners had illegally added floors to the building after it had been built in order to try to maximize their profit. And on top of that, they were storing large amounts of water in water tanks on the roof. Uh, The building was never engineered to handle that kind of weight. A few months later, in December of 1993, a landslide hammered into the foundations of the Highland Towers apartment complex in Malaysia, a 12-story residential building that was at the base of this steep hill in Kuala Lumpur. 
48 people died as the building literally slid off of its foundations and as it rode on the mudslide eventually snapped in two. Here in our own country, the W.E.B. Du Bois Library, University of Massachusetts, the tallest library in the United States, 26 stories tall, is said to suffer from spalling or chipping bricks. The bricks are literally being pressed and squeezed so that there are pieces of it falling off the building. Some have speculated the architect never accounted for the weight of the books that would be put into the building. As a matter of fact, right after the library was open and uh, filled, they immediately removed 60,000 books from the library and investigations have found that the building is slowly sinking into the ground. And of course, the most famous architectural blunder, perhaps of all time, is the Leaning Tower of Pisa which is basically a bell tower. It was almost 200 years in the making, but only a few years after opening, the tower started to lean and has continually, gradually continued to lean further and further over hundreds of years until finally in 1990, engineers decided to do something to shore up the foundation because the original architects had only provided for about 10 feet of limestone foundation sitting on clay soil underneath, not nearly enough to, to accommodate a tower hundreds of feet tall. You hear all these stories, and we are reminded that architecture is not just about making beautiful buildings. They have to be able to stand up to the forces of nature, whether it be gravity or winds or rain or storms or floods. And through the years, architects and engineers have developed all kinds of codes and calculations and specifications and rules, all of those things that establish standards which are designed to allow buildings to stand the test of time. They do that because... They know know that the forces of nature are strong, and not only that, that people are always prone to take shortcuts, that everyone wants to do something cheaply or quickly, but construction is a serious matter, and the cost of a mistake can be measured in billions of dollars sometimes, or more tragically, it can be measured in the lives that are lost if mistakes are made. This is why people literally spend years studying and studying the rules of architecture and engineering and codes and regulations that go into making sound buildings because construction is a serious matter. It's also why Jesus picks up the image of construction and architecture as one of the most poignant images of a person's spiritual life, of the gospel, the wisdom of believing in the gospel or the foolishness of rejecting the gospel. And it's what we find in our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 7, 
verses 24 through 27, which is the second part, if you will, of the ending that Jesus gives to his Sermon on the Mount. It basically is describing two shocking events. The first one we saw last week, which was the shock of people arriving on the day of judgment, expecting to enter into the kingdom of heaven, only to be turned away by Christ saying he never knew them. And the second event, which is our focus this morning, is the shock of a crumbling house on the day of judgment. A crumbling edifice where people assumed that they were prepared for the winds and the storms that they'd face. Let me just take a moment to remind ourselves of Jesus' words here. Reading in verse 24, Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This is, as I said, the second of two warnings that Jesus gives here, finishing up his sermon, a warning basically focused on those who are self-deluded. They're self-deceived. They think that they have some means of safety, some, uh, some ability to withstand, whether it's God's judgment or whether it's just the storms of life. They believe that they have built a solid foundation in their life, or at least a solid structure. And it's only tragically at the end that they come to realize that everything that they have ever built or lived for is washed away in a second. They're self-deluded, self-deceived, and tragically destined for judgment. You remember Jesus gave this same kind of warning in verses 21 through 23 when he talked about the delusion of religion without relationship those who think they're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but basically arrive on the day of judgment to hear Jesus say, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But here, in verses 24 through 27, is a second kind of delusion that Jesus mentions. And it's the delusion, we might say, of doctrine without deeds. Doctrine without deeds. Because Jesus says, this is an illustration of two groups of people who hear these words of mine. That is to say, they have some exposure to the teachings of Christ. They have some affiliation with Him or with His followers. They may have attended church. They may have been brought up in a Christian family. They have, may have read the Bible. They may have studied doctrine. And just like those in verse 22, they had a life, no doubt, of some sort of religious observance, at least at some point. 
But just like the first group that Jesus mentions, at the very end, they find themselves deceived, self-deceived, and tragically realizing it when it's too late. And he illustrates this, obviously, with this picture of two homes, two buildings, two houses. One of them built solidly, the other not so much. Because one is built on a faulty and weak foundation. And the problem with that, of course, is that that kind of foundational weakness is not immediately obvious. In fact, on casual observation, both of these houses probably appeared to be roughly the same. They probably appeared in some fashion to be adequate, if not beautiful. Both people built their houses, no doubt, with the same sort of desire. They wanted a comfortable life. They wanted a happy life. They wanted a stable life. They may have even wanted a moral life, a respectable life. And the outward circumstances and the outward situation of their life might have been very much the same. They could have, at least from the analogy, they could have lived in the same town, maybe attended the same church, maybe had the same friends. And in good weather, in good times, their lives might not have appeared to be that much different. When there were no storms, when there were no crises, when things were going easy, on the outside everything appeared to be exactly the same between these two builders. In fact, people watching, people looking from the outside probably couldn't tell any difference. The people who were building, maybe not themselves, would have even seen a lot of difference. Because on casual observance, most of us never consider the foundation of a home. We might drive through a neighborhood and we might appreciate all the lovely windows. We might look at all the the fine dental molding that's around the outside if we get to go inside. We might gawk and awe at the kitchen or the bedrooms or the living rooms or the ceiling heights or all of those things, most people don't even stop to consider the foundation as anything significant in a home, at least not on casual observance. They evaluate it primarily based on its external beauty or maybe what they might imagine are its points of enjoyment. They don't ever really think about the foundation until catastrophe strikes. And the application of Jesus' parable here is clear. People handle their spiritual lives in a very similar fashion. They focus on the external appearance. They focus on what looks good or is good enough. They usually are not keen to examine things at a deep level. They may be involved with church. They may perhaps serve other people in some sort of way. They might even call themselves Christians or have Christian friends. Maybe they can recite some doctrines. Everyone who sees them thinks that their house passes inspection. it's you personally, you may not have thought very much about your foundation. You may not have given very much consideration to the real crises 
that you'll face. You're focused on the things that bring you enjoyment. You're focused on the things that attract your eye because you've never really been through the storm yet. And so you haven't really been forced to think about the foundation. People in Israel didn't have that kind of luxury. Flash floods were a part of life. It was, for the most part, a dry and arid climate throughout Israel. But if you have been there, you know that the country is streaked by these wide, flat riverbeds called wadis, which in a moment can be filled and uh, rushing with water whenever the rains come because the hard-packed soil doesn't soak up the moisture very well. It all runs through these wadis and fills them up very quickly. In fact, they fill up uh, not only with rushing water, but they fill up and overflow very often. And people would often be swept away. The water would come up so fast they couldn't even get out of the wadi in time. But even if they could, all of the houses and structures that were around them would often face the severity of the flood. And so Jesus pictures this. He pictures these two houses facing this kind of a storm. And when the storm comes, it doesn't matter how beautiful the house is, no matter how impressed other people are with it really doesn't matter how much you enjoy the various parts of it because it's all going to be swept away if it has no foundation that's the point in fact the very roof and walls that you expected to protect you from the elements may be the very things that are crashing in on you and crushing you in the moment of crisis This kind of illustrates the storms that beat against your spiritual house, the house of your soul. They come out of nowhere. You seemingly have little time to prepare for them. You find yourself being overwhelmed by whatever it is. Which, by the way, that raises the question, what is Jesus talking about here? Some people think that he's simply speaking about the storm of God's judgment on the day of judgment. And that certainly is true. Just like in verses 21 through 23, he pictures those who are standing before him on the day of judgment, expecting to enter the kingdom of heaven, saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do many wonderful things in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You will face a storm. Every person will face a storm on that day, unlike any storm they have ever conceived of. And if you've built your life on a foundation other than divine righteousness, you are facing ruin. No matter how good your life may look to others, no matter how impressive may be your credentials, no matter how grand may be your standing, no matter how much praise others have given you, you are going to be swept away. But I don't even think that's the only application here. In fact, when Luke shares the same parable in Luke chapter 6, there's no mention at all of eschatological or eternal judgment. It's a part of the application to be sure, but it's not the only application. As a matter of fact, when you read in the Old Testament, God's judgment, both eternal and temporal, are often 
pictured as some sort of storm. Ezekiel 12, for example, ends where people are talking about the prophet Ezekiel saying in verse 27, the vision that he sees is for many days from now. And he prophesies of times far off. Verse 28, the Lord responds, Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, None of my words will be delayed any longer. But the word that I speak will be performed, declares the Lord. And then in verse, excuse me, in chapter 13, he begins to depict God's judgment as a rising storm. Coming against, at least at this point, the false prophets. He says to Ezekiel, precisely because they have misled my people, saying, peace, when there is no peace. Because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash, say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain and you, O great hailstones, will fall. Oh, excuse me, on you, great hailstones will fall, a storm and a wind will break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating which you, with which you smeared it? In other words, he's saying, well, look, when, you're, when your house collapses on the day of crisis and calamity, nobody's going to be worried about the beautiful paint that you put on the walls or the chandeliers that you hung in the lobby. Verse 13, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath. There will be a deluge of rain in my anger, great hailstones and wrath. And I will make a full end and I will break down the wall that you've smeared with whitewash and bring it to the ground so that the foundation will be laid bare. And when it falls, you will perish in the midst of it. And you will know that I am the Lord. Thus I will spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who smeared it with whitewash. And I'll say to you, the wall is no more, nor are those who smeared it. Here he says in verse 13, he's speaking to these prophets. These prophets who are proclaiming that there's no cause of concern. Saying there's peace when there is no peace. Saying that God's wrath is not something to be worried about. There's a judgment coming. It's a judgment like a storm, he says. And all of your beautiful, beautifully constructed house is going to come crashing down on you. You go through the book of Proverbs, you see the same kind of image several times. Proverbs 10.25, when the tempest passes, the wicked are no more, but the righteous is established forever. Or very similarly, Proverbs 12, which pictures your spiritual house like a spiritual life, like a well-built house. The wicked, he says, are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Or Proverbs 11 The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end is the way of death. And all of these things are talking about those who are building 
and building and building on their own thoughts, on their own opinions, on their own authority. Never realizing that it will all come crashing down on the day of crisis. Your spiritual life is going to face storms, Jesus is telling you. And when that comes, your foundation or your lack of foundation is going to be exposed. may not be obvious now, but it will be exposed. Of course, it's always difficult to get people to do that kind of examination. Most of us don't bother with it. Very few of us, when we bought our house, climbed under it or walked around it to do a thorough examination of its foundation. The typical homeowner doesn't bother with that kind of thing. They're too focused on the personal enjoyments, the personal amusements, the personal luxuries that might be in the superstructure. But no respectable builder... No respectable architect focuses simply on those things. They'd be foolish if they did. They'd be exposed. No legitimate builder would ignore the importance of a good foundation. Too many people approach their spiritual lives their eternal souls with that kind of foolishness. You warn them that the foundation they're building on is going to bring problems. You warn them that there is no foundation. You try your best, but because the problems are not yet visible, because they are buried, if you will, underground, there's often no real sense of concern You can't always get people to dig down and take a close look to realize the fundamental problems that are there. Because there may not be visible problems in their lives. They haven't faced, if you will, the storms yet. So when a concerned friend or a concerned Christian comes along and begins to urge them that they have built improperly, that they haven't followed the rules and regulations that they aren't really founded or grounded on solid ground, the foolish person balks. They balk and they say, why? My house is as good as anyone else's. It looks just as fine as anyone else's. Because all their real problems are so easily covered up in the days of sunshine. They don't want to be bothered with all the codes and rules, and regulations that go into a sound building. But the wise builder is different. Jesus pictures him as building on a rock. Luke 6.47 describes him as a person who, quote, dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. In other words, this was a person who is willing to put in the time and the effort to do whatever was necessary to found their life on the solid foundation. They were willing to devote the time. They weren't hurrying through the process. 
They were going and and willing to go through, sifting through the sands of human opinion and personal amusement and all of those shifting sands under their feet. All of those things they think through carefully and consider all of the consequences. They count all the costs. They're not a superficial builder. And they dig all the way down until they find the foundation, which is the words of Christ. Jesus says, this is the person who hears these words of mine and does them. That is the bedrock. He isn't suggesting, by the way, that it is this self-effort that is ultimately the key for your salvation. You might read that and imagine that the key difference between these two builders relates to their doing. They both hear the words of Christ, but only one of them responds and does The wise builder hears the words of Christ and does them. But you have to understand that the doing is only the visible element. Just like the house is only the visible part of the structure. But the real security, the real salvation comes where? In the foundation. It comes in the foundation. In other words, when you see the person who is hearing Christ... And doing the deeds of Christ, it isn't because he's trusting in those deeds, but it's because he's trusting in Christ. It's because he understands that these, this is the place that is the only solid foundation to be found in life. And so he or she decides to build their whole life on these words. Because they have judged that only the words of Christ are a legitimate foundation that can stand against the storms of God's judgment. And so the wise builder, recognizing and having done their due diligence, sees the quality of the foundation and begins to build their life on the words of Christ. They're building there because they trust that foundation. And it's ultimately their trust, their belief that saves them. In fact, it may not always be the most beautiful house. It could be, in some ways, a very simple house. It may not be as impressive to other people. But the important thing is that when the storms come, it will not be swept away. See, the the real issue here is not even the doing, it's the trusting. Your doing will be imperfect. You will not be able to obey everything as much as you would like to obey. You will not be able to walk in perfect righteousness as much as you'd want to. You will struggle from time to time with your words, with your attitudes, with your desires. You will stumble. You will fall from time to time. The real issue is not the perfection of your obedience or even the perfection of your building. The real issue is that you have placed your trust in the righteousness of Christ. You've placed your trust in His perfection. And you're going to build your life on that trust. On that attitude towards Christ. 
Meaning that you lay aside all self-sufficiency, you lay aside all trust in yourself, all self-righteousness, all aspirations to your own glory. You lay aside your whole life because you trust in Him. And so therefore what He says you do. James calls you a doer of the Word. Again, not that your life is perfect. That's not the point. Because it's not the perfection that saves you. But it is the continual and continual determination to come back. Because you've placed your faith in Christ. These are two different builders with two different foundations and two different outcomes. Both of them confident, I'm sure, that their house is going to provide everything they need. But one man's confidence is in the Lord and the other man's confidence is in himself. The wise man is anxious to know What the Lord's righteousness is. He listens to instruction. He's prepared to be taught. He wants to repent. He wants to walk in the light. The foolish man is interested in none of that. He wants a structure. But he doesn't want to be bothered. By all the troublesome and bothersome rules. And regulations of sound building. There's always been people like that. Even within the church, there are people like that. They are willing to listen to the words of Christ, but it makes no real difference in their life. They know a lot, but they do very little. In terms of their life, their goals, their pursuits, their values, their entertainment, they are indistinguishable from the world. The foolish man may have some knowledge of God's Word. He's heard the Word of Christ. But he builds on the sands of human opinion and human attitude. And they are always shifting. They are always unstable. Or he builds on the sand of his own self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. And he never takes time to consider the real storms of life, much less the final judgment. But you know, you don't build your spiritual house just to be admired by others. You don't build your ethical life just to be admired by others. You build it in times of sunshine, but you build it with the times of crisis in mind. It is a shelter, or it ought to be, against the floods and storms of life. And it's only those crises that's going to reveal the quality of your building. Some of you faced those storms already. You felt your spiritual house was solid, but you have sensed that it has been washed away. You might have concluded that the problem was trying to build a spiritual house to begin with. It did you no good when the crisis came. And so you've given up trying to build a spiritual house. Life or a spiritual house. Maybe it was a storm of temptation. 
that overcame you and overwhelmed you and crushed your view of your own spirituality. You were exposed as the failed sinner that you are. Maybe it was a storm of disappointment. Circumstances and pressures that overwhelmed you, whether it was relational or financial or health or whatever it might be. But the storm came and the facade of your spiritual life was swept away. But the problem is not that your spiritual house is useless. The problem is you were building it on the wrong foundation. You were building it on the foundation of your own righteousness, your own self-assertion, your own self-trust. And it might have been admired by others, but it had the wrong foundation. As Jesus, excuse me, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, let each one take care how he builds, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is giving you this warning, this reminder, you might say, that there is a solid foundation. There is a right way for you to build a house, and if you do it the right way, you will stand. You will endure when the crisis comes. Everything will not be lost. Of course, at the beginning, it has to be. If you built the wrong kind of house on the wrong kind of foundation, you have to tear it all down. That's the only way to get it right. You have to abandon everything. You have to recognize the lack of foundation you have. You have to abandon your current house. You have to abandon your current life. You have to abandon all that stuff. You have to, as Jesus says, you have to lose your life in order to find it. You abandon all that stuff and begin to truly build on Christ, which begins with bowing your heart in true submission to Him, yielding your life to Him, confessing your lack of foundation and the danger of God's judgment, and giving yourself unreservedly, completely, absolutely, entirely to Christ. You do that and He forgives your sins. And He sets your feet on a rock. Jesus said all these things and Matthew tells us in verse 28, when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. They maybe couldn't describe what they were experiencing, but they could tell that these words are different. Different than the scribes, different than the Pharisees, different than anyone else they ever heard because it had a unique authority. They were beginning to recognize that everything else they had heard was just a sort of meaningless chatter, just puffed up words coming from self-congratulatory boasting from men. Those who come with all kinds of explanations but no real foundations. Just like all the philosophies and religions that arise from this world, they have no explanation ultimately for the beginning or the end. 
They have no explanation for why men and women are so capable of error, why they disagree about fundamental issues, why they sometimes prefer irrationality over rationality, why they are willing at times to deny the obvious, to chase the foolish, why they make so many interpretive mistakes and do so with so much persuasion over so many people. But they hear the words of Christ and it cut through all of that stuff and it defined all of it for what it really is, which is essentially personal insubordination to God and His authority. And it infects every person who was ever born, whether religious or irreligious, Jew or Gentile. They heard Christ... And they heard a different kind of authority. This is God's authority. This is God's word. And it pounds against your heart and mind whether you admit it or not. It comes as self-authenticating authority. Because it comes from the God of the universe. And it lands on your ears with conviction. It's the only thing that explains this world, the sin that has invaded it, the need for forgiveness, the possibility of redemption. Greg Bonson says that all men like fools try to evade God with the result that their mental lives are afflicted with logical inconsistency, incorrect interpretive perceptions, misleading conceptualizations, fallacies in reasoning, mistakes in computation, personal bias and error, inappropriately chosen standards, inability to resolve disputes, purposeful lies and deception, and above all, the inability to make sense of their methods or knowing. If you open your eyes, that's what's all around you every day. It's the confusion and chaos of sin. And yet here's Christ speaking and making sense of all that. And it strikes the people with the authority that comes from God. Folks, these are the only words worth building on. These are the only words that are true. These are the only words that are going to make you stand. On the day of judgment. Unfortunately many of those who were in the crowd. That day. While they were initially enamored with Christ. They would fall away. Because they couldn't let go of their own pride. They couldn't. Let loose of their own self-sufficient authority. The question then. Is what about you? What about you? You hear the words of Christ. You know that he is speaking truth. How long will you harden your heart against it? How long will you continue to build on sand? How secure will your spiritual house be on the day of judgment? Let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer.
Father, we are so burdened by those around us who are self-deluded and self-deceived. We see them listening to the words of Christ, but we see them building on the foundation of the world and we know that their house will be swept away. We know that the crises are coming. Many of us have faced crises already and we have found your truth to be that rock on which we stand. Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of the blind, soften hardened hearts, break up fallow ground, heal those who've been wounded already by your chastisement. Lord, we pray that you do all these things today that we all might stand on the day of judgment having built on the right foundation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in... Amen.